Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now this month, we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they might overcome those roadblocks. Today, we get to hear from three wonderful writers and friends, Liesl Swagger, Marjan Kamali, and Alex Ferrero. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. And everyone else in the chat, feel free to, if you share some of the same issues that our listeners who we're going to talk about today um, have, feel free to talk about that in the chat. Feel free to throw in your own two cents and any ways that you've gotten through those obstacles. That's that's great. I'd love to hear, see the chat blow up with ideas and talk. It's always fun. Okay, everyone. Uh, Liesl Swagger is a graduate of the Nava Incubator Program with a new pretend deadline. <laughs> of March for her current revision of her novel, A Single Season. Her novel is based in part on her own experience in the world of ballet. So she does have uh, experience as a performer and having to deal with the performance issues behind that. Marjan Kamali is an award-winning author of The Stationery Shop, a national and international bestseller, and Together Tea, a Massachusetts Book Award finalist. She is a 2022 recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellowship, her new novel, which we're very excited about, and I've just seen her posting about this on social media, is called The Lion Women of Tehran, and it comes out in July of 2024. That, I just you just want to read that novel, The Lion Women of Tehran. That just sounds perfect. Um, Alex Ferrero is originally from Texas, and he's at work finishing his dark and gritty novel incubator thriller, Like Thunder in the Next County, about a crooked deputy, a rookie cop, and a Texas ranger investigating a cold case. All right, here we go. So we have three writers from different backgrounds and different experience. Uh, we're going to go right into our listeners' questions. The first was sent to me uh, in written form in the email. So I'm going to read that first. And this is from Claude, and Claude is French, so we have to pronounce her name correctly in the in the fun way to pronounce her name. So Claude is telling us, she says, I would love to tell you what prevents me from finishing, but I am unsure of knowing myself. And I think that's actually pretty common. She says, let's say I keep having new ideas or better ways to present them. They modify the rest of the novel, its structure and the consequences, and I am now totally discouraged by the magnitude of this umpteenth revision. I spent nine years working on three stories, first drafts, and multiple revisions, i.e. rewriting. I'm getting sick of my novel. How can I feel not ashamed to be still working where others are now querying? <clears throat> I know I shouldn't compare, she says. Isn't it a pity to know I am getting close to a solid draft and the end and lack the energy to go any further? It is a pity, but it's actually, again, really common. At the same time, I am torn because I refuse to give up. My novel may be more important for my readers than for me. It carries my visceral beliefs in equal treatment for all before the law, a French constitutional right, but also an absolute and needed rejection of all prejudices, at least when it comes to justice first. Then in society, I'm aware of my unrealistic humanist dream, but I have to try. French are experts in these violations, but I should it should ring true in the American society, especially today. Do you think you can help me? Yes, we will try. What I love here is that she's really still passionate about the subject of the novel and the themes of the novel and, and the necessity of having this story out there. That is always, always really important. 
But that sense of exhaustion, particularly when you've been working on a novel for so long, and I oftentimes tell my students, um, exhaustion does not equal completion, um, which is actually really sad. <laughs> I wish it did. I wish when you were actually completely exhausted and hated your book and wanted to burn it and bury it and then burn it and bury it again and dismember it. I wish that meant that you're done, uh, but it doesn't. Um, we're going to have Alex start on this one. Alex, what do you think? What advice would you give to Claude? Yeah, so I, I had a lot of thoughts. I, re I related to a lot of this. Um, and so uh, there's a few different things. I think one, something that comes up a lot is the perfectionism angle. And it's just, there's, you know, it's never going to be as good as you as you want it to be. And at some point you just have to say, okay, and move on. Um, something that struck me too is, an easy trap, especially if you're you know early in your writing career, is just you want to put every idea you've ever had into your first novel, and that's one impossible, and two produces incoherent novels that are trying to be everything and and are successfully being nothing. So, you know, I, I think um, for me, it it was helpful to start another project um, for a couple of reasons. One, because that was something else to work on when the exhaustion got to me with the other one, but two, it was a channel for different ideas that I didn't. So I didn't have all the, you know, I wasn't just trying to shove a bunch of stuff into the the first novel that just was, was too much. Um, the, uh, the other thing that sort of struck me is there's a lot toward the end of that comment about big picture stuff. Like I want to have, these messages about uh, justice and, and equal treatment and all these things. And, and I, and, and I relate to that too, cause I, you know, I, I love books that mean something and I want my writing to mean something, but the important, important thing to always remind yourself of is none of that message stuff is going to mean anything if it's not working on a story and character level. So getting back to the, the story part of it and what, you know, what is, what actually is the, you know, going to keep people turning pages? Who are these characters that you're trying to get people to fall in love with? What, what makes you love these characters? Why, why are you, why are you create, why did you create these people? What do you want to do with these fictional people? Um, and, you know, in later you can, you can make sure it's underscoring the, the message the way you want it to, but you have to, you have to fall back in love with the story itself. If you're going to have a chance of, of getting the message out there, because as th there was another line in there, it's just like, I, I feel like this is, that she said that I, I feel like this story is more important for my readers than it is for me. It's like, well, but what readers, you know, if, in, until you finish the story, you're not going to have readers. It's just, it's just you right now. So get back to what, what makes this story important for you and what, what excites you and what's passionate for what, what, what you're passionate about in this. And then, you know, and then down the road, you can think about readers when there's a, when there's something for them to read. Yeah, I mean, that makes me think about, so there's an essay that I oftentimes go back to called An Architecture of Light, and it's by Philip Gerard, and you can find it in the collection Creating Fiction, which was edited by Julie Chekaway. Um, and it came out a while ago, 1999, but I think they might have updated the issues. Anyway, he talks about, he he refers to the idea of a cathedral and how when we go into a cathedral, we are overwhelmed, lifted up, 
um, inspired by the feeling inside the cathedral. And, and we don't, you don't even have to be religious, I don't think, to feel those things. Um, but just the grandeur of the place, um, mankind's ability to even build something like that. If you do believe in God, it would probably be a mystical or religious feeling that kind of lifts you up. And so your feeling is all of these bigger ideas that you're carrying with you into the, into the cathedral. However, he reminds us that the people that built the cathedral have to not always be thinking of God and not always thinking of majesty and not always thinking of the entire cathedral. They have to be thinking of mortar. They have to be thinking of the kind of brick that they use. They have to be thinking of their ladders. They have to be thinking of very, very concrete things that are very, very small and mundane and ordinary in order to get that cathedral built. So I think always keeping in your mind when you, you feel like you're giving up on a project, you can keep those bigger goals in mind, that bigger message in mind, but then also going back to the mundane materials of the word, the sentence, the line, the scene, the chapter, and, and focusing small in order to build that bigger cathedral can be really helpful to you. Um, Alex, you also, um, I, I should have asked you before we started, you, you had a pause in your writing, and then you were able to really kind of get back into it big time. So what happened? How did you break through that, that block? I think so. This is that kind of that's the other benefit of what I was talking about before about having another project. Um, I really, really resisted setting aside the one I was working on because I just kind of felt like I didn't want to lose my momentum. I, I felt like it's sort of a trap to just set, set stuff down. I feared I would never finish it, I would never pick it back up. But when I finally just got to the point that I couldn't make any progress on it and it was you know, write something else or not write at all and, and set it aside and, kind of, and, um, got some distance from it. When I came back to it, I was fresher. I could see answers to things that, um, uh, were just seemed Im impassable to me before. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, just, I think that's what that's true with a lot of creativity is sometimes you have to, you have to just put it down, not think about it. And then when you pick it back up again, it'll, it'll become clear to you. It just, it's just really hard to do that. If you're holding on to, I have to finish this. I have to, I have to keep the pressure on. I have to bear down. It's not going to get any easier. You know, it's, it, it can certainly be a trap as a writer to just kind of start something new, hit a wall, start something new, hit a wall and just never come back to stuff. So you do have to eventually come back to it. But I think for me, coming back to it isn't the challenge it's letting go of it in the first place and and setting yeah. it aside and and i think also when when you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself which it sounds like Claude is um having a you know just just taking a minute to sort of focus on other things in your life that are not this and getting to the point where um I don't know, at least i can sort of get into a mode when i'm really focused on writing where it just sort of feels like the total measure of my worth as a person is how well I'm writing, how well this project turns out, how well I wrote today. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes uh, you just have to remember that you, you are more than your own writing. And, um, and it's hard to let go of that because you care so much about your writing and it feels like you're, um, you're, you're stepping away from it, but you know, you're not stepping away from it for, forever. And when you reconnect with the, <laughs> the fullness of yourself as a person, it does, it does take a lot of the pressure off, uh, 
off the thing. And it's just, this is kind of the paradox of it. You want to do something great. You want to do something special. It means something. And in order to do that, you have to take all that pressure off the thing, because if you put all that pressure on the thing, you're not going to do the thing that's special and great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and God, taking a break. Um, I mean, there's some writers that will constantly jump to new projects and new projects and new projects and never finish anything. And it's just kind of the way they are. And then there are other people that just beat themselves into the ground trying to finish one thing. And they put all their eggs in that basket. So try to identify the type of person you are and, and make sure you're kind of guarding against those tendencies. Um, and taking I have so many writers that they, they just will not take a break from their books and they really need to take a break in order to be able to do the book at all so it's really important Marjan what do you think um I agree with a lot of what Alex and you have said I, I think you both hit on um all these amazing points about this and if I were to add to it I would just say one thing that helps a ton with finishing is to remember your own insignificance because I think one stumbling block is, especially with the first novel, we want to stuff, like we were saying, everything we know about the planet into this one book. And we want to make sure that we make clear that the reader understands that, for example, in Claude's case, and I've read parts of her novel, and it is incredible, and um, it, it's important that it get out there. But for example, Claude wants the world to know that the French justice system has these certain flaws. And when when we have goals that big, it can get in the way of finishing because how on earth can you encompass that plus a ton of other things in one book? So maybe taking the pressure off is not just remembering that you don't have to have the all be all everything novel as your first novel, but also that you yourself don't matter that much. And I, I think that helps a ton because when I was struggling to finish my first novel, which all told took me 10 years, um, and like Alex, I took time off. I took six years off. I took six years off where I was just like, you know what? This is not working out. And I need to do these other things in my life. And when, when, when that first novel, when you finally accept that, you know what, guys, when this comes out, it's not going to like, there's not going to be trumpets blaring. Uh, the New York Times isn't going to like be calling me nonstop. It's going to be one book amidst many books. It's going to be one book that hopefully some people enjoy, uh, maybe a lot of people enjoy. But it's not like, this isn't like the the end of the world and the beginning of everything for me. It's It's just one book and I'm just one writer. I think that takes the pressure off and that helps you finish because you just lower your expectations a tad and you're not trying to stuff everything in and to like teach the planet everything that you know. And the other uh, little advice I would give is just accept that there's more where that came from because I think um, one reason a lot of writers try to stuff everything they know into that one novel, the first novel, is because in addition to being extremely enthusiastic about, you know, sending off a message or teaching something, they also feel like, this is it, this is my one chance. I know a lot about astrology. Let me stick that in and all that. But just understand, you're going to have other chances and you're going to tell other stories. You don't have to stuff everything in this one time. Um that helps you finish too, because things can become leaner 
and more streamlined. And you can just take a breath and understand that this is one story out of many that you will tell. Yeah. You know, that just reminds me, um, something else I think about is I can't think of one author I love whose first novel is their best one. (laughs) It's true. Well, actually, maybe, but yes, no, I hear you. Uh, Yes, 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 no, that's true. Um, Good. Lisa, what do you think? Um, So the line that jumped out at me on this was, I keep having new ideas or better ways to present them. And um, absolutely. And I feel like that's such a trap. Like the problem with fiction is that there are infinite possibilities because I am making everything up. Um, And at some point I have to like start shutting those avenues down. Um, and like Alex was saying, I, I think about it, not in terms of like, these ideas are going away, but like these ideas I'm setting aside and perhaps I can bring them into an essay or a short story or another book or, so it's, it's the same thing when people talk about like killing your darlings, like, well, I'm not killing them. I'm just setting them to one side and perhaps I'll like recycle them elsewhere. Um, The other thing was um, what someone was saying, I mean, yeah, it seems like there's maybe a lot of pressure on the outcome for this. Um, And, you know, I've never published a novel or anything like that, but I have published a couple of essays. And like my experience with that was like, it was sort of like biting into cotton candy. Like there was like that huge high and then it's just like, it's gone and it goes like so quickly. And so I feel like that was a really good lesson for me in sort of, I need to love this process because the outcome is probably going to be maybe like a little bit meh, possibly. Like, (laughs) I don't know, but, um, so yeah. And like, really, I think, um, you know, when she talks about like losing energy, I was thinking Michelle about what you were saying about like, you know, the bricks and the mortar and the ladders. And I feel like, you know, I'm in my third rewrite and, the reason I'm energized is because I'm learning new things about scene construction and character development. And when I'm in there with the bricks and the mortar and the ladders, like I am excited about what I'm doing. Um, So yeah, yeah, like taking it down to those smaller components rather than like looking at the whole cathedral for sure. Yes, we aren't curing cancer. Unfortunately, (laughs) we are not. We are not curing cancer. Okay. Um, We're going to go on to our next one. This is a writer who wrote to me uh, and and submitted her audio. And she was so embarrassed by this question that she wanted me to use another name. So we're going to call her Susie. And she thought, I'm the only one that suffers from this issue. I'm so embarrassed by this. I can't believe I'm even asking this. Do you think you can use this? And I was like, oh, my God. Susie, uh, this is a very common issue. Here we go. Hi, 7 a.m. novelist. I would love to hear someone talk about creative and professional envy, particularly among writers who um, you would consider yourself a peer with. So not necessarily the person on the top of the New York Times bestseller list or that author who is besties with Oprah, um, but with people who are actually friends. I have 
one writer in particular, um, but I'm lucky enough to have many writers who are very, very talented, who I can also call my friends and my peers. And there's just one who is always doing something that makes me want to put down my work, throw it out the window, light it on fire, because she is so brilliant and so talented and I love her. And I also just want to give up completely. Um, I'm wondering if anyone else has this experience and has any thoughts they might share that might be helpful and make me feel like less of a jerk about this. Thanks so much. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Um, so could possibly anyone else on the planet have this issue? I think so. And the problem with this issue is that you feel like an asshole because, and that makes you feel even worse that you actually um, are living up to that expectation you have of being like the person, even, even you're, you're even lower um, because, because they don't suffer from this issue and you do, and you've got this, some dark, awful problem in your personality that's going to doom you for the rest of your life. Liesl, do you relate at all? So when you send us this question, I love this question and I'm <laughs> so happy that this person, um, plucked up the courage to, to send this to you. And I had, I had two thoughts when I was listening to it. And the first is that it's really hard having a front row seat to other people's success. It just is. And it doesn't make you a bad writer friend. It just makes you a human being. Um, and I was also thinking like, if this person was a character in a novel and you were like gonna put them in this like competitive situation, but this character like wasn't gonna feel jealousy, like that would just be weird. Um, so it's just, it's so natural and and also just to say that there's nothing wrong with this friend celebrating their success either. But I had I had two thoughts about it. And one was, is it possible for this person to maybe grow their literary community a little bit? Because I, I think sort of the more people are in your pond, it can help sort of maybe like dilute the impact of whoever this other friend is, who's, you know, getting fellowships and residencies and publishing and, and doing all these brilliant sparkly things. Um, and maybe possible to find like a totally different like writer pond to swim in as well. So that maybe you have two and maybe there's, you know, a community that you can be in where people have never heard of like this, this brilliant person. And I think it can just sort of like put things in proportion a little bit. Um, and the other thought I had was, you know, I'm not sure like where the news of this, you know, brilliant friend's success is coming from, but is there a way to take control of how much you're hearing about it and how often? Um, and you can still be supportive. You can still be a good friend, but to create a buffer between yourself and this friend's success in order to protect your own ability to keep writing. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, I don't think. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love those. Grow your community, but at the same time, kind of close down the information you're you are getting because the social media monster can be can be pretty vicious in in the things that we hear about. Um, I remember at one time, um, 
a, a writer who was uh, an international bestseller um, and was thanking everyone for supporting them for being an international bestseller. And they were kept repeating that information on every uh, on every social media site that they were an international bestseller. And thank you every, for everyone for being letting them be an international bestseller. I'm like, OK, if you're already an international bestseller, you don't need to promote yourself anymore. <laughs> I mean, I got really annoyed and it was my own, you know, problem. Um, but I was just like, okay, enough already. I'm tired of hearing about this. Though, of course, I, I think I liked their post because I like to be nice. <laughs> but I was just had these awful, awful thoughts and feelings about it that wasn't good for me and wasn't good for anybody. Uh, Marjan, what do you think? Well, first, I would like everyone to know that I'm an international bestseller. Are you an, I think you are an international bestseller. <laughs> but Marjan, you're so sweet that I will trumpet that everywhere. I no, um. I mean, I'm joking, but, uh, but, but I am. But I, th I, I just here's here's what I know. I have suffered from this envy so deeply, so much my entire career. Usually, because of my personality, I fixate on one person, um, and that one writer becomes my nemesis in my mind. They don't even care. But in my mind, I become obsessed with their success and their accolades and their social media. And then I think it's so um, detrimental because we all live Hannah Montana lives. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to explain that for the youth who may not know this old show called Hannah Montana, which um, was like in the two, early 2000s, I think where Miley Cyrus is a secret rock star, but then in her home, she's just this like hometown girl. And one thing I've learned, and Michelle, I learned this from you way, way, way back, a long, long time ago, which you said at a session at the Muse uh, at Grub Street in Boston a million years ago. And when you said it at the time, I was like, that can't be true, but it sure is. You said, um, there's nothing as rewarding as the time when you're actually sitting behind your desk and writing. Like that's where the true pleasure comes and that's where the true reward comes. And the rest is nice, but there's nothing quite like that. And now I've found that to be true because um, today, if someone were to follow me on social media, they might be like, oh, that's nice. and. <laughs> national bestseller but um the truth is that there's a hannah montana life there's that but you don't see my other life you don't see me caregiving for my elderly father you don't see the incredible pain and the incredible loss that's involved in my daily sort of situation because i don't post about that because i don't want to because it's too painful and, and I'm sorry if I'm not keeping it real for the social media, but I can't post about that because it involves another person who doesn't want me to share that. Every successful writer has that. So maybe you should remember this for the, for the person who sent in the audio that A, it's never quite as glamorous as it may seem. That writer also has their own personal struggles. That writer has a side they're not revealing to you. That writer may be struggling with things that you don't even know about. So um, that's what I mean by the Hannah Montana life. There's like what we portray 
which is also very real. And it's not fake. It's real. That happened. But there's struggles that you don't know about. And I think that helps us um, tamp down the envy because it makes us maybe remember that we're all in it together. We're all struggling. And of course, one person's success doesn't mean you will have any less. There's enough to go around. But I agree with what Liesl was saying. I do think it helps. Sometimes you just have to protect yourself and maybe not follow their social media as much just so you can stay in your own game and not let it get to you. Yeah. 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 I remember I, I said that because I remember going on my first book tour and this happened with my second one as well. I, I reached such a point of exhaustion. I was I was going to an event every night for several weeks and I was driving a car all over the place, mostly Midwest, but other places. And I realized that I got, I was just really tired of talking to strangers. Um, even though I, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed talking to readers, but I just wanted to be back home either with my friends and with my family or just in that in that nice quiet place that I could control and that I was creating instead of producing um, instead of trying to sell because that's kind of a that's a really yucky feeling that's that's not a fun feeling if you're a creative person um, so trying to remember that being at your desk is one of the most freeing experiences of being a writer is really important also someone in our chat said the solution is getting old then you don't care about anything except what you have to do and I think 100% I think the older you get you just stop giving a shit about this stuff and it just kind of rolls away. And so that's a benefit of age. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I also relate to this a lot. I'm a, a almost pathologically competitive person. And so whoever's like the, the best writer in my circle, I will immediately be measuring myself against them. And um, the, that way lies madness. It occurs to me there's a couple different time types of creative jealousy, I think. There's the professional side where, you know, we're seeing other people getting published, getting, you know, getting their book deals, whatever. And then, you know, for, for me, that's, I mean, one, just reminding yourself it's a fickle business and there's no rhyme or reason or, or justice to, to when things happen or who things happen for. Um, I personally have had to just take a step back from all social media because I mean, there's, there's no real incentive to not make yourself look good on there. And I feel like even when people are posting about how they're struggling, it's always kind of a humble bragging way. You, you just can't help it. You, you want to, you're presenting something you're, you're, you're seldom being as, as, as raw as you really could be. And it's just, it, you, that will create the illusion that everybody's succeeding and you're not. And so I just, I just can't personally, I just can't look at it, but the other kind of creative jealousy is, and I think this is what she touched on in her, her message she sent us is the, just the actual creative stuff, not even so much. Oh, so-and-so is getting published and I'm not, but just like you read something. I think she was talking about, she read something her friend wrote and, and she just wants to quit because the, what her friend is producing is so good. Um, and I, I relate to that too. And I, I think about a, a great uh, Miles Davis quote, which is um, man, sometimes it takes you a long time to sound like yourself. And maybe this friend of yours has, has figured out how to sound like herself in, in a way that you haven't yet. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're not as good of a writer. It's just, it means that you're, you're on a different stage of the process and a different stage of that journey. And there's no real roadmap to figuring out how to find, how to sound like yourself and, and how to figure out how to be the best version of the writer you are. And I, I don't know why some people get there quicker than others, but that's just how it is. And, and you have to, 
I think just focus on focus on un- coming to understand yourself and understand understanding what makes you the writer that you are, what what excites you about the things that excite you, and what makes you want to write the things you want to write, and and learn how to be the best possible version of that. And you you just can't think about it in terms of of other people when they're when they're getting there versus when you're getting there. Maybe the thing, maybe the kind of writer you want to be just takes a longer time to get to than the kind of writer somebody else wants to be. And um, it's not fair, but that's the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also what, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say at a certain point, like it's so subjective. Like I, maybe I was talking to you, Michelle, I had just read Hamnet Mm. and I was like, oh my God, it made me cry, bliss that. And you were like, you know, and so like, what, uh, you know, what Susie sees as her friend's brilliance, like another person may be kind of like, like it just doesn't do it for them. And so again, like really trying to um, just kind of keep things in perspective for sure. Yeah. yeah. And social media, it's so destructive in so many different ways, particularly in the distraction it gives you as a writer. I've, I've started to put myself on, um, on Wi-Fi fasts. And so I'll do 14 to 16 hours a day where I don't let myself uh, go online at all. And I actually have a, a fasting calendar that keeps a, a ticking calendar, ticking clock for me. So, cause I find that I respond to that. It's almost like a competitive thing with myself um, that I can see how far I can go every day. Um, and I could do it one day at a time or another day at a time, but I, but I find that these fasts work really, really well for me. And it kind of forces me to reevaluate how I'm spending my time, what I'm concentrating on and to just stay in sit in silence more and and to be able to work better that way. Um, So that's another idea. Um, You know, you can get fasting apps. They're usually for food, but I'm actually using mine um, for (laughs) Wi-Fi. So, um, and, and that I, I actually love it. It's, it's working very, very well. And I feel Um, like that like turns the equation. So rather than like being flooded with this stuff, like you get to choose like how much of this friend's brilliance you're going to look at online or, or whatever it is, like how much, how often, when that happens, rather than just sort of like the floodgates are open and you're just going to get this like tsunami of their success, like whenever it happens. Um, so taking control of it in that way. I do that too. I, I also, I don't go online for like uh, most of the day, I, I limit it to maybe 20 minutes at the end of the day, because I find envy stuff aside, it's not just that it's so distracting as a writer, because you get these little tidbits of information that lodge themselves into your brain, and can take you down rabbit holes and can just take you out of your space, your mental space. And so I think I feel it's very invasive. And I don't, I don't want to know so many of the things that are on there. I don't want to know about, like, I don't want to know what Lisa had for breakfast. Um, you know, not that I don't particularly like Lisa, but I just feel it takes you out of the, the writing mood mode you need to be in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And those, um, that thing that the phone does, like, this is how much time you spend on, you know, it's like that weekly report. Like I did a screenshot of that one time because I was like, this is why my novel is not done because I just spent like a bazillion effing hours on this thing looking Mm -hmm. at, I don't even know what. Who knows? Yeah. It's hard. 
because it's like a you know looking at it at Twitter or whatever is it is like it is kind of a dopamine hit and it's something that you at least I would get addicted to and and would just you know if I'm if I'm stuck in my writing you know, when I was back when I smoked I would be if I was stuck in my writing I would go have a cigarette because that was the the dopamine hit that that I wanted when I was uh you know I needed something and now it's I look at my phone but at least when I was having a cigarette I was still thinking about my writing whereas you know if I'm scrolling through social media, I'm, I'm thinking about some, I'm thinking about the, the election. I'm thinking about a war somewhere. I'm thinking about my friend's baby. It's, it's just, it's just all these things coming at you fast, pulling you in all these different directions, all these different directions, except your writing. Yeah. Go ahead. So I guess what I'm saying is I should start smoking again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's the message of the podcast for today. So start smoking. <laughs> going to have to wrap up. Everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can find other listeners. Okay. Any final words on breaking through your writing obstacles? Liesl, how about you? Turn off my Wi-Fi and just fucking write. Yeah, yeah, easy. It's so easy. Alex, how about you? Reconnect with what makes you the writer you are and what makes your story the story you want to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, remember that it's a privilege. No one's putting a gun to our heads. We're not digging in a coal mine. It's a privilege to be doing this. 